Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, April the 21st, 2022. This is episode 3080, 3080 of the Survival Podcast. Since it is Thursday, 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 it's time for the Expert Council Q&A show. And I've got a great lineup of experts uh, set up for you today. And here's the formula to have the best chance of getting your question answered by one of the experts. So go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on the About tab. When you do that, you'll see uh, a sub-tab that is Meet the Expert Council. You can see all the Expert Council members and what they can help you with. Pick your Expert Council member that's best suited to answer your question, and then email me, not them, and email it to me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Put the following in the subject line. TSPC, like it's a single word, expert. TSPC space expert in the subject line. Ask your question and state the expert that you have a question for. And do the question in one clear, coherent sentence. I know you have details. It's okay. After you distill it down to a single question, hit return key a couple times. Put a paragraph break in there so I can read it easily when I'm scanning my email at a 1,000 miles an hour. And then give me all the details that you think are necessary. And that way you know, the experts know, and I know what you're asking. And then everything works better. Here's what we've got today. In the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights, Dr. Paul himself talks about how instead of solving problems, government is adept at multiplying them. Dan McAdams will talk about how the same old, same old lines are used once again, over and over again, to put Americans into a war frenzy. And it's amazing that it still works since it's always the same. But he's right. Chris Rossini will talk about how the road to destruction isn't paid with good intentions, rather government help. John Pugliano will do a lightning round for you on economic and investing questions. Doc Ken Berry will talk to us about uh, supplements, hype versus reality, and specifically vitamin E. John Bush will talk about seed phrases and hardware wallets. Jeff Lawton will talk about what to compost and what not to compost. And then we have tips for starting your generator in the cold. I let this one slip. This came in the middle of winter and somehow I missed it. I think it's good to listen to anyway because getting ready in spring for winter gives you lots of time. And these are basic things. And some of the parts of it really isn't just about the cold. It's about keeping your generator ready all the time because we all know that, yeah, ice storms and things like that cause power outages in winter and you have to deal with the cold. But just having your generator start when you want it is important too in the spring and summer when what comes thunderstorms, windstorms, and other things that make power grids go down. And even if you live where the weather is really nice all year round, there's always a potential for things like backhoe fade. If you can't figure out what that is, just think about it, backhoe fade. Anyway, so Tim Cook has some stuff for us about starting generators and some items that you can keep on hand that make that happen. And then I have a discussion for you on bureaucracy today. And this is based on a quote by Thomas Sowell that I just heard. And I was like, wow, he's, he's right. It explains everything. And he said, you will never understand bureaucracy until you understand that for bureaucrats, procedure is everything and outcomes are nothing. And we're going to talk about 
when we get to my segment in this particular thing, not just how this applies to government, but how any regulated industry or any gilded industry, how this applies as well, like, oh, I don't know medicine, even the quote-unquote private component of medicine and medical treatment and pharmaceuticals and everything else. And it even explains a lot of the absolute asinine stupidity that we just went through through two and a half years with the scandemic. It really does. Again, for bureaucrats, procedure is everything and outcomes are nothing. Thomas Sowell, I'll be talking about that at the end of today's show. But with that, let's jump on into the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights. Dr. Paul on government multiplying problems, Dan McAdams on the same old, same old being used to beat us into a war frenzy, and Chris Rossini on how the road to hell truly is paved with government's help. Will the government make things worse? Of course, they, they will. <clears throat> and that's what they do. That's, uh, that's their job to keep them busy. Bureaucrats have to have jobs. So whether it's COVID or wars or whatever, everything they do tends to uh, cause two more things. Mises said in economics, that's the way it's work. If they write one regulation, you need two more to try to correct it. I think, uh, I think he made a mistake. I think it creates three more. Just think of the talk now from the progressive, the most bizarre thing in the world about what are we going to do about the inflation? Isn't it Putin's fault? Uh, isn't it Biden's fault? Well, that's misleading. They say, you mean spending money causes inflation? Well, Nancy Pelosi says no. Spending money helps. <laughs> She wants to spend more money. and But that's the way they think. And, you know, as bizarre as it may seem, I think she probably believes that. I don't know for sure, but at least she has a lot of influence. But this whole thing of uh, spending money to solve the problems of spending too much money, this is really the challenge we have, Chris, in trying to present our case for liberty, is that, uh, yes, we want to do something. But what we want to do is enhance liberty, and that means that we have to challenge the runaway government. Sad state of affair. We have to continue our fight, Chris, on this battle. Kuhn says Putin will only stop when we stop him, when pressed on U.S. troops. And this is a familiar old pattern that's emerging. We've seen it over and over, Dr. Paul. If we don't stop Saddam in Baghdad, he's going to be in New York City taking over. If we don't stop Gaddafi, he's going to take over Africa. It's the same old neocon line that's used over and over to put people into a frenzy. If we don't stop Putin now, we're going to be speaking Russian next week. And, it's, and unfortunately, the people don't recognize these patterns. It seems to work every time. It's like Charlie Brown with the football that Lucy's holding it. You know, she always lets it go and he always tries and he always kicks it and falls backward. Everyone always thinks that we're horrible, unpatriotic people until in the end it turns out our way. But this is preset in motion. And actually, let's just put the clip up. Let's just hear what he actually has to say. He's on the Sunday talk shows. Very powerful. He has Biden's old seat in the Senate, Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Senator Kuhn says, we're in a very dangerous moment where it's important that on a bipartisan and measured way, we in Congress and the administration come to a common position about when we are willing to go the next step and not and to send not just arms but troops to the aid in defense of Ukraine if the answer is never then we're inviting another level of escalation and brutality so let's break down what he says dr paul he's literally saying if we don't engage russia with american troops 
over its current border dispute with Ukraine, that somehow Putin is going to expand through Europe, there's a new Soviet Union that's going to emerge, new Cold War, which of course the military would love to see happen, and we're all going to be attacked. It's again, over and over the same pattern, there's no evidence. You know what it is, it's the same old domino theory, because you mentioned Vietnam. If we don't go into Indochina and if we don't bomb in Indochina, we're all going to turn commies. Well, we did go in and bomb Indochina, and we're turning into commies anyway, as you <laughs> as you point every, out every day on the show. So it's an old rhetoric that he's using, but unfortunately, it tends to work. During COVID, uh, we the whole world was presented with this idea of build back better all at once and all over the world. It's very, very weird. And if you look at those words, build back, I mean, build back what? Nothing. Viruses don't destroy economies. That's, uh, but government policies do. And government policies surely have, even to this day, messed everything up. Uh, and everything, if you notice with government, they destroy by helping, quote unquote, helping. And that may seem very counterintuitive, but politics and tyranny are all about deception. Whether you know it or not, you're in a big poker game with politicians, and they're there to get you to want their help. You know, whatever they have to say, whatever, you know, has to be presented to you, you need to agree to it. And the entire downward spiral is people agreeing, yes, yes, print more money, yes, yes, invade that nation, yes, invade that nation, and then that nation, and, and make this policy. It's a big yes spiral downward to wanting their help. And that has to stop. It has to stop. We cannot rely on their help anymore because they will destroy everything. This has happened so many times uh, where you where you get to the point and they will build nothing back. Destroyers know how to destroy. They do not know how to build because building is decentralized. It is not planned. Go on any of those discovery channels on how things are made, how things are manufactured. It's absolutely amazing how things are made in the economy, and it's all decentralized. There is no central planning uh, that can make it happen. When you look around the world at where the central planning is, it's destroyed, and nothing is ever built. So that's the, the message. We have to stop asking for their help. We'll be just fine without it. Uh, but unfortunately, people have to get to that point where they uh, you know, are ready to make that change. So I, I think the most interesting thing out of that trio to, today in today's episode was Ron's thing at the beginning. It wasn't just the government multiplies problems, but it's, it's their job. It is the thing that government exists to do, to multiply problems. And that might sound completely counterintuitive uh, or like an unintended consequence or something like that, but it's not. Government is an organism. Government is an organism. Bureaucracies are organisms. And I'll, I'll save my thoughts on bureaucracy for my anchor segment today. But I want you to just think about government as a living thing, as an entity, as a thing that seeks to propagate itself, to continue to exist. So you are a living organism. You seek to continue to exist. So every day you eat food, right? Or even if you're fasting, at some point you stop fasting and you eat food and you drink water because if you don't, well, you'll die. You'll cease existing. So you see, you seek to continue to exist. Let's say you have a job and your job is in danger of being automated into extinction. And you actually like the company you work for, you like the boss you have, you like the income you have, you don't want it to go away. What are you most likely to do if you are an, in, an innovative, 
motivated individual that wants to keep their job. You will start expanding your responsibilities. You will start to come up with things for you yourself to do that either are enabled by this automation or cannot be accomplished with this automation. You will seek to propagate your existence in your job. Now imagine you work for the government. This gets really easy to do, doesn't it? You can't get rid of me. I'm an employee of the government. Well, how would the government work without me? Well, this mentality, this self-serving mentality that every individual has, I want to progenerate myself. This is why you'll see sometimes when there's a, a, a perspe prospective piece of legislation, okay, they use the grandfather clause. This is so all the people that are benefiting it from it right now don't have to give it up and you just stop doing it in the future. It doesn't always work, but it's one way you can get a thing done in government because of this very thing. Government seeks to make sure that it doesn't go away. Now, why does government exist? Why does Now, the most basic answer to that question, the most basic answer to that question is to protect individual rights. And that would be, so people say to protect the right to property. Okay, that's just a right. Individual rights. That is the only legitimate purpose of government, to make sure that individuals do not have their rights violated by other individuals or other groups, period. There's, no, there's nothing else. And anything that you can come up with that even has the propensity to be seen as a legitimate form of government to anybody with an IQ over 95 that actually is concerned about freedom, it will come down to protection of individual rights. Because if I protect the rights of the individual, I don't have to worry about protecting, you know, I don't have to worry about trans rights, right? If I have individual rights, trans people are individuals, gay people are individuals, women are individuals, black people are individuals, Hispanic people are individuals, white people are individuals. You see how it works. Like if I protect individual rights, I'm good to go. So that's the most basic form of government. Now, how much government do you need to do this? Not very much. Not very much. So how does government continue to exist? There's two things that government must do to continue to exist. It must, A, remain legitimate in the minds of the people who fund it, even against their will. In other words, the taxpayer has to believe, the majority of taxpayers have to believe we need government. Even if you hate the government you have, you have to believe that you need it. But number two, it must continue to grow. Any government that starts to that stops growing will follow natural progression of decline. This is how any company, if a company starts to decline in revenue, it is game over if they don't radically change what they're doing. It will continue to get smaller and smaller until it dissolves into nothing. You either grow or you die as an entity. Right? You can when you stop growing, you start aging. Think about it that way. Like a child is growing, 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 growing. Men tend to grow. People say 18. Men tend to grow physically and emotionally up till about 25 on average. Women more in the lane of 20 to 22. And I'm not a biologist, so don't hold me to that. But it's in that range. Well, everything after you stop growing is aging. And aging is heading toward what? Death. You see how that works? So governments must continue to get larger. Okay, now, how does a government get larger? See how simple this becomes, right? A government gets larger because there's problems that need solving. So if, if government exists not to protect individual rights, which we, we, we've left that so long ago that it's not even a thing anymore. Government exists now to solve problems because without government, how would we? That means there's a problem that government needs to fix. 
So if government exists to, to, to solve problems, follow it. And if people have to believe they need government to solve problems, and government needs to grow to continue to exist so it doesn't start aging out, decaying, and dying, what does government need to grow? More problems. So even if everybody in government was really dedicated to the mission, you'll hear more about that in my segment at the end of the show, Even if they really were, they're still going to seek after their own personal interest, which is to progenerate themselves, to keep themselves employed, to keep themselves gainful, to keep themselves moving up the chain. Then the natural outcome is it will create problems so it has something to solve so it can continue to grow. And this is why you can never have a government beyond basic property protection that will ever remain in check. It's impossible. It's like putting a life form inside a vial, like a multiplying bacteria inside a vial, and making sure that the bacteria has enough to continue to replicate itself. It has enough food and air to replicate itself. And think you're going to keep it in the vial. Eventually it will get so big it will rupture the vial. There is no containment. There is no containment of a living organism. You could say we're going to shelter in place and socially distance and lockdown, and the virus will still go all over the world. The worst virus on our planet today, I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, is our government. With that, let us move on with a lightning round of economic and investing questions for John Pugliano. Hello, TSP. This is going to be a lightning round of questions. First question comes from Jeff. And incidentally, Jeff, I do remember when Jack and I met you in Colorado. That had to be sometime, uh, I think, in late 2013. So kind of crazy how time flies. Jeff is asking about should he pay his personal mortgage off. He's sitting on a boatload of cash, and he can easily pay off the mortgage. And Jeff, I can't give you specific advice, but just in general, if I was in your position, my initial answer would be no, and that's because you have an extremely, extremely, extremely low interest rate, 2.375%. The money is essentially free. And so while I'm not a fan of debt because I truly believe that debt is slavery, when you're borrowing the money at such a low interest rate as you are, and you seem to have your act together because you have a significant amount of cash reserves, I think keeping the mortgage makes a lot of sense. Now, you also mentioned that you started getting into Bitcoin investing, and you have the ability to max out your 401k and self-directed IRA and things. But at the same time, you're sitting in all this cash, and you also mentioned that you don't have any clue what to do with the cash other than wait for an opportunity. Well, it worries me to hear you say that because I don't know what kind of opportunity you're waiting on, but that's what concerns me because there's never a perfect opportunity. The future is always full of uncertainty, and times are always scary, and I think the worst thing that investors do is they let their paranoia control their rational decision-making. You're sitting on a lot of cash, and I assume you've been sitting on that for quite a while. And if you look over the last just three months alone with things like the market and cryptocurrency, and I only bring that up because you mentioned that Bitcoin is one of the things that you want to accumulate. Well, over the last three or four months, there's been a series of negative headlines that I think have all been way overblown and have little economic long-term impact, but they've done a great deal of driving down all the markets. And I mean Bitcoin, small cap stocks, large cap stocks, tech stocks, No matter what sector you want to look at, things like Omicron and the Ukraine invasion and the Federal Reserve raising interest rates and fear over hyperinflation or stagnation, all those things in the last four months 
have driven most asset classes to where they've dropped down significantly to their 200 or more day moving average. And these are great opportunities to buy the dip. And I don't mean that you'd go in with hundreds of thousands of dollars and buy everything in one single day, but you can nibble away and dollar cost average into these market lows. And so while I do think it's a good idea that you don't pay off your mortgage, at the same time, if you're just going to sit on a lot of cash, you're going to be doing yourself a disservice because you're never going to know when the best opportunity is. The next question comes from Jim, and it sort of carries along those same lines. Jim has the opportunity to invest in a 401k where they match at 10%. He also contributes to his IRA and his Roth, and he's wondering if he should keep contributing to these retirement funds as opposed to transitioning and investing in Bitcoin. And he specifically asks, is a 401k a worthy investment opportunity to continue at this time? Well, Jim, I don't know exactly what time you mean, but if I'm understanding your question correctly, you're telling me that your employer is matching your 401k contribution up to 10%. So that means that 10% of your income that you contribute you're getting a 100% return on your investment, and that's guaranteed. I think that's a fabulous opportunity. It's a gift of free money. I think you'd be foolish not to take advantage of that 100% return on your money. And then as far as the other side of your question about should you be transitioning into Bitcoin, well, this isn't a binary question. It's all about diversification. And so I think if you do want to invest in Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, I think that it would be very easy for you to take a portion of your overall savings and invest in cryptocurrency outside of your retirement accounts. And then even with your current IRA and Roth, although it's a little more difficult, you can find ways to directly invest in cryptocurrencies. And even if you don't go a direct investment route, there are certainly ETFs that cater to futures contracts and things like the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust which are very good at mimicking the overall performance of something like Bitcoin. So it's not binary. It's not an all or nothing decision. With the type of financial products we have today, it's extremely easy to diversify your holdings. Now, speaking of not diversifying your investments, we had a question from James, and he's interested in using energy futures to hedge against rising heating costs. Well, James, futures contracts are an excellent way to hedge against exposure to commodities and other things such as energy costs, but their primary use is not as an investment vehicle for the individual investor. It's for large businesses that want to mitigate their operating expenses. So if you were a trucking company and you were spending a million dollars a month in diesel fuel, then it would make all the sense in the world to use futures contracts to hedge against rising fuel prices. But if that were the situation and you had that much money on the line and that much exposure, then you would have the resources both in terms of the talent and the know-how and the capital outlays to adequately trade the future contracts so that it's beneficial to you. Now, you as a private individual trying to buffer against your heating costs, do you have the skill? Do you have the time to go through the learning curve? Do you have enough money to invest in futures contracts to make a difference? If you're like the average person, then I kind of doubt that you do, and so I would advise against it. I think you would be far more successful by simply investing directly in stocks or exchange-traded funds that are directed towards companies or industries that are in the energy, the material, or other growing sectors of the economy. Because regardless of whether we're in a high inflationary environment or not, 
Generally, ownership in stock equities almost always do better than straight commodities and more than keep up with inflation. And if you don't believe that, go back you know, to the 1970s, look at the price of gold, look at the price of silver, look at the price of oil, and compare those to where the S&P 500 was then and where it is today. And that takes me into the last two questions, which is really a related topic, and that's about investing in equities, but simplifying it by broadly investing in an index fund like the S&P 500. Now, this next question comes from Kara, and it may not seem like that's what she's asking about, but that's going to be my answer. Now, Kara is asking how to find a reliable financial advisor. Well, Kara, broadly speaking, you get what you pay for. If you don't have a significant amount of money, then you're unlikely to be able to afford what a good quality investment advisor would charge. And also, if you don't have a significant amount of money, regardless of how good the investment advisor is, the nominal rate of return won't be that great because you're just starting with such a small base. And so before we even get into the question of how do you find a good advisor, I would always ask, do you need one? Until you can really afford good talent, it makes a whole lot of sense to just invest the money yourself. And the best way to do that, as you've always heard me say, is to own a broad-based index fund that's something like the S&P 500. There are a number of ETFs or mutual funds that meet that description, from Vanguard to Fidelity to Schwab. They all have their own proprietary funds, or you can buy an ETF like SPY. It doesn't matter. They're all essentially the same. They give you broad diversification across the U.S. economy. And since a large majority of those S&P 500 companies are also multinationals, you're getting probably 35 or maybe 40% exposure to international markets as well. Now, there are better ways to invest, but there are not necessarily easier ways to invest, especially when you evaluate the risk-reward ratio of a long-term position in the S&P 500. Now, if you don't fit in that category, if you do have a significant amount of money and you think you would benefit from hiring an investment professional, then what I would recommend you do is you look for someone that's in the position that you want to be in in, say, the next 10 or 20 years. Find a couple people like that and talk to them and see who they're using, and then you want to interview those investment advisors and see if they're aligned with your overall investment goals. Remember, a lot of investment advisors are nothing more than salesmen, and if anybody tries to put high-pressure tactics on you, that should be a red flag because the harder someone tries to sell you, the less likely they are to provide you with good investment advice. And that goes into the last question from Nick. Nick is asking what I think about the ball go head and fire investment methods, which essentially are what I just talked about of dollar cost averaging into an S&P 500 index fund. Well, I don't follow those investment approaches, so I don't know if that's specifically what they recommend, but if they do, then I'm all for it. I think for the average investor, that's the best place to start. Well, hey, I still got other questions in the queue. I promise to get to them next time. Until then, this is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast. Well, I definitely agree with John, but I, I, I do take exception to one thing. The Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is not good at mimicking the performance of Bitcoin. It isn't. Go look at, a two, look at the graphs of the two. It hugely underperforms Bitcoin because it's not a direct correlation. It's not a, you know, a stand-in for a true spot ETF, which we, we still don't have in Bitcoin. If you want to put retirement dollars into Bitcoin, we, we've done some shows on it. 
Uh, there's also a company called Choice that allows this to be done, including holding your own private keys with more than just Bitcoin and other cryptos. If you're looking at retirement and you're looking at money that you really don't want to lose, I, I always say in crypto there's Bitcoin and there's everything else, and everything else is a gamble. Um, the big thing I agree with John, though, is number one, stop waiting for an opportunity while opportunities are everywhere. To, to do better than paying off your mortgage, all you have to do is make 3% on your money, and if you can't make 3% on your money, you don't deserve your money. I mean, I, just to be completely blunt, right? If you can't make better than 3% on money, then you hate money, and money will hate you. And right now, you, you, you need to do better than that. Because inflation is eating you, uh, by the official numbers, somewhere between 8 and 11% a year. So holding cash is a loss of 8 and 11%, 8 to 11%, based on the CPI, which I call the CPI. In reality, I think you're looking at real-world inflation right now in the neighborhood of 20%. Now, the reason I find that to be such an interesting number that we're sitting at now is it's the number Michael Saylor gave us about 18 months ago. He said that's going to be the cost of capital right now is, is, is 20 to 22%. And it's bang on. He, the, the guy is not right about everything, but boy, he's a prophet when it comes to that. When it comes to math... Like, this is a, a, an MIT-trained engineer. They're pretty good at it, right? That specialized in finance and economics after he got out of school. So you've got really switched-on guy giving you that number. So we need to be looking to make somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% on our money to break even. But there's, I'd rather lose 10% than 20. You see how that works? Like, one of my good friends, when he started his company... He literally went into contracts that were losing money, federal contracts. So a contractor has a, a contract with the government. Contractors already figured out, I'm going to lose a million dollars on this job. And he'd come in and say, I'll tell you what, I'll take the job over. You're going to lose a half a million dollars, and you're going to pay me $250,000 to lose a half a million for you instead of a million for you. And the guy, no, I don't want to do that. Well, then you're going to lose a million dollars instead of $750,000. And he got a lot of contracts that way. Sometimes the numbers worked out better. But he'd say, I'll, I will guarantee the contract will only lose this. You already know it's going to lose that. You're going to pay me the spread in the middle between the two. And I'm going to assume all the risk. Because I'm going to do it for this much money. And if I'm wrong, I'm going to cover the rest of the loss. We have to start looking at some portion of our investment that way. So sometimes I'm not going to be able to make the full 20 that it's actually costing me to hold capital right now. And sometimes I will. Now, long term, I'd be putting money into Bitcoin. And... There's a lot of people that I hear talk about when it goes down, I wish I would have known then, blah, blah. And you get all this FUD and all this retraction in price, and they sit around and don't buy. Now, it's going to be interesting. When, not if, when Bitcoin's $75,000, there's going to be tons of you asking me how to buy it who are sitting right now listening, not buying at about $42,000. I promise you it's going to happen, and this is how I know it's going to happen. Whenever Bitcoin hits an all-time high, I do do some affiliate marketing, as you know, and my referral bonuses triple when there's an all-time high, and they go to nothing. I get almost no referrals when it's at an all-time low. In other words, people are buying high and selling or holding out low. It's the exact opposite. People are being greedy when they should be afraid, and afraid when they should be greedy. My thoughts on, on, on that. Let's move on. Now we have uh, a segment from Dr. Ken Berry on supplements and specifically vitamin E. Hello, Jack. 
Spearco and the TSP crew, this is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Dan. Uh, Dan says, what is vitamin E and do we need to supplement it? Uh, details. In our storage supplies, we keep two years of our vitamins and supplements in a dry, cool place and rotate it accordingly. My wife recently purchased a vitamin E supplement and I've never considered it. The market marketing indicates that it can help promote heart health, but is it really a necessity? I love uh Dan that you say the marketing indicates because that's exactly what it is and that's exactly all it is is marketing. Uh Dan continues, I currently take 6000 milligrams of vitamin C spread throughout the day, vitamin D3 30000 international units a day and then the recommended for iodine, quercetin, B complex, B12, magnesium, zinc and finally CBD drops once daily. You can tell I listened to Jack, but I did my research for myself and have tested twice, and my levels are all within normal range. My concern is that this might not benefit me, or the other items that I take might already be moving me in the right direction. Thanks. Okay, so there's many, many questions within this question. First and foremost, uh, vitamin E is one of the four fat-soluble vitamins. There are excellent food sources of vitamin E. I have a YouTube video about that. Uh, there is actually quite a bit of research, Dan, that shows that it is not only not helpful to take a vitamin E supplement, but that it can actually do harm. Uh, a few years back, probably a decade now, it became very popular to take vitamin A and vitamin E supplements. Uh, but then when we actually started doing meaningful research about a vitamin E supplement, it turned out that, that people actually had more problems than they did benefits from taking a vitamin E supplement. Uh, depending on what your diet is currently, Dan, you might need the vitamin C supplement. If you're eating a standard American diet with lots of carbs and lots of sugar, you probably need that and are benefiting from the vitamin C. But if you're eating a low-carb, keto, ketovore, carnivore diet, then you don't need the vitamin C supplement at all. Depending on where you live in the world, at what latitude, you might need the vitamin D3 30,000 international units is a, is a bit of a high dose. Make sure your doctor checks a vitamin D25 level to make sure you're not taking too much. Uh, the, the B complex is fine if you're not eating meat, but if you're eating meat and eggs, you're getting plenty of all the B vitamins. Uh, quercetin's actually never been shown to be essential or even needed. There's some uh, epidemiological research that shows that it might be a benefit, but this has never been proven. There are excellent food sources for magnesium and zinc. I, I have YouTube videos about those, but if you want to take a supplement, I guess that's fine if you just want to spend that extra money. Uh, the CBD drops, if you can, if you feel like they help you in some way, then they're safe and probably fine, but, uh, for many people, probably not necessary. So I would, uh, caution, caution you strongly. Please do not take vitamin E supplements or vitamin A supplements. Get these from real food that are part of a proper human diet. Hope this helps. Thanks a lot, guys. This is Dr. Barry. See you next time. So there's a couple ways to come at this. First of all, I completely agree with Dr. Ken on 99% of what he said. I will say when he talked about the quercetin, quercetin is not a necessary nutrient, period. You don't need it to survive, to live, to exist. But the reality is, one way or another, modern humans do a very, very poor job 
of getting zinc inside their cells. And the modern American is largely deficient in zinc on top of it. So quercetin's main function that it actually uses for us as a, or provides for us as a supplement is to act as an ionophore for zinc. In other words, it opens a channel in the cell wall that allows the zinc to get in the cell. This does not only assist the body with fighting off infections from uh, RNA uh, replicating viruses like COVID and flus and colds and many other viral infections out there, which is why it's a great aid in the body's ability to fight viruses. It's not an antiviral directly. It's an indirect antiviral, though there is some indication that it may have some direct antiviral properties as well. But I, I take it for the opposite reason. So either as long as we have enough zinc in our diet or we're supplementing zinc and we're using quercetin, we're going to have a much higher zinc load in our cells. And this has actually been shown with empirical studies. Like they've actually tested this and said, yes, if you add quercetin to the diet, more zinc does go into the cell. And they've also shown that if there's zinc in the cell, it doesn't just shut down some of these viruses. It also shuts down the replication process or impedes the replication process in certain cancers. This is why I take quercetin. It's not so I get my daily allowance of quercetin. It's for the the, the pathway opening for zinc into my cells. Uh, everything else, um, I'm dead on an agreement with one caveat. I teach the same dietary inputs that Ken does. I do believe that keto, carnivore, low-carb, high-fat, call it whatever you want to, is the proper human diet. I believe it's how humans... Uh, how humans actually evolved, and those that think the vegan vegetarian approach is you know just as good, or that's really how humans should eat, or whatever. There is no way to do that without supplementation. Where we can do a keto carnivore diet, etc., and not take any supplements. All vegans either end up with health problems, or they take very specific supplements, or they're very meticulous about the combinations of vegan foods to make sure they get all nutrients. It's you can't just eat like you can just eat cow. You can literally everything you eat came from a cow, and never do anything, and you'll be fine. If you try to mindlessly just eat vegan, you will have nutritional deficiencies. Period. Okay. Now, why does that matter from a supplement standpoint if you're not a vegan? Because if you store food for long-term food storage and we end up in a bad long-term situation and you begin to live off your stored food, now you may require supplementation because you're not getting enough of the food that you should be getting. You're living on survival rations. So I think it makes sense to have these things in storage. And if we're not using them, then at some point... We dispose of them and replace them based on storage life. So th that's a different thing than daily supplementation. All right. Hopefully that helps, and hopefully it's more clear than mud. Now we have a segment on seed phrases and hardware wallets from John Bush. What's up, TSP community? John Bush here with an expert counsel to answer a couple questions, a couple related questions about cryptocurrency. All right, here's the first one. Am I able to take the public and private keys of one type of software wallet and put them in another? I have BTC and ETH in JAX and want to move it over to Exodus. May I take the individual public and private keys, copy and paste into Exodus and keep rolling along? Or should I just send the crypto over to my Exodus address? Also, during an Unloose the Goose, Sal mentioned a person that went to prison while controlling 500 Bitcoin that the government couldn't coerce out of them. Does anyone have any more to share on that story? 
Okay, let me break this down here. Uh, the second question I'll get to as well talks about hardware wallets and what makes them more secure or less secure. And I also ask about the seed phrase. I actually did one of these expert counsel things about seed phrases before and what goes into all of that. But let me let me break this down just a little bit here. So whenever you set up a cryptocurrency wallet, first of all, what's a cryptocurrency wallet? It's a piece of software that interfaces with a cryptocurrency blockchain. It allows you to send and receive cryptocurrency on a given blockchain. It also generates private key and public address combinations, okay? There's also multi-wallets like Jax or Exodus that will allow you to interface with multiple different cryptocurrency blockchains, okay? So here's what happens when you set up a cryptocurrency wallet. I should also say you could have a paper wallet, which is just a public address and private key. Let me break this down real quick. When you set up a cryptocurrency wallet like Jax or Exodus on your mobile phone or your desktop, it creates a master private key. There were some upgrades that took place in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies followed suit where there's now a master private key that has a bunch of slave private keys, right? I use the master slave analogy ironically with this audience, but so you have this master private key that's generated a long string of letters and numbers. That master private key is then thrown through a hash function and you create a sub private key. In fact, more often than not, when you create a wallet, a bunch of sub private keys get generated. And then each one of those sub private keys then goes through another function to create a public address. Okay. The public address is the long string of letters and numbers that you would give to someone if you want them to send you cryptocurrency or someone would give to you if you want them, if you want to send cryptocurrency to them kind of like a bank account, kind of like an account number, although you can create an infinite number of these public addresses. And it's advised to create a new public address for every single transaction so as to obscure your transaction history should you be using a cryptocurrency that has a transparent blockchain like Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, or many others. It's the private key that unlocks access to the cryptocurrency on the public address. That's why it's always important to use a non-custodial wallet. That's a wallet where only you have those private keys. A custodial wallet like Coinbase or a Kraken Exchange or whatever, they have access to your private key and you do not. Okay? So here's how this works. That master private key then present the wallet then presents you a seed phrase so when you set up the wallet on the back end of the wallet you don't see this it generates this master private key the master private key then creates these private keys slave private keys sub private keys and a bunch of public addresses that correspond with each private key that private the master private key is then translated into what's known as a seed phrase or a mnemonic phrase or a backup phrase or a recovery phrase all of these terms are interchangeable that 12, 18, or 24-word phrase is simply a visual representation intended to make it easier for humans to engage with this master private key. The seed phrase is the master private key, just in a different format. Interestingly enough, all the seed phrases are derived from a certain set of numbers. I think it's like 2048 or something like that. 
uh, sorry, a certain s set of words. It's not completely random. It's always the same set of words. And then 12, 18, or 24 words are pulled. And it's actually only the first three letters that actually correspond to symbols, letters or numbers on the master private key. Okay, so here's why this is important. With that master private key, you can then take it and enter it into another wallet, a new wallet. So let's say, for example, you have a Jack's wallet, 12-word seed phrase. It's on your phone. Somebody steals your phone. Thankfully, you put an encryption password on the wallet or on the phone as well. And then you're like, oh, man, this is really worrisome. But thankfully, I wrote down that seed phrase on a piece of paper, like John Bush encourages, not on my phone, not on my computer. I wrote it down on a piece of paper. I stored it, preferably in a fireproof, waterproof safe, or at least in a Ziploc bag so I can't spill water or it doesn't get moisture on it, right? So now I can just go get a new phone, or I can go to my computer, download Jax, and whenever it says, do you want to create a new wallet or restore from backup, I put in that seed phrase, also known as the master private key. And voila, because that master private key, because all of the other private keys that are tied to the public addresses where you have your cryptocurrency stored, because they're all derived from the master private key, you get instant access to all of the other cryptocurrency. Okay? Now, there's a couple questions in there. Here's one thing to be aware of. You can only import a 12-word seed phrase into another wallet, a different type of wallet that also uses 12-word seed phrases. So, for example, Coinomi, which is my favorite wallet because it's the easiest to use. However, they're upgrading their desktop wallet right now, so it's not available for download on their website. But you can't take a 12-word seed phrase from Coinomi and import it into a 24-word seed phrase wallet. Sorry, a 12-word seed phrase from Jackson imported into a 24-seed phrase wallet, okay? So if you have a Jax seed phrase, you'll have to search on the old internet for another wallet that has 12 words. Wallets that use 12-word seed phrases. I wonder if the internet's going to give us something that simple. Uh, Exodus also uses a 12-word seed phrase. So look at that. So you'll be able to take it from Jax into Exodus just like the user was specifically asking. Now, oftentimes I encourage people to also export your private key, right? So you have a master seed phrase, you have a master private key, you have a master seed phrase, and then it derives all these private keys. Each private key corresponds to one public address. If your wallet enables you to export those private keys, then on just about any wallet, as long as it has the import or sweep function, you'll be able to pull that cryptocurrency into that wallet as well. It's always better to do this sweep uh, or to do the importing of a seed phrase instead of sending the cryptocurrency on the blockchain for a couple of reasons. For one, sometimes you got to pay a fee on Ethereum or Bitcoin, right? Another reason is every time you do a cryptocurrency transaction on a transparent blockchain, you give up some privacy because as you have a bunch of smaller transactions that come in and then you make a larger transaction, that larger transaction pulls from the smaller transactions, it pulls little pieces, little bits from the smaller transaction, and then it all ties it in together. And so someone that's doing blockchain forensic analysis would be able to tell that at one point all that cryptocurrency came from one wallet. There's a privacy implication there. I should also say some wallets will give you the functionality of sweeping a private key or importing a private key and or importing a private key. Sweeping a private key is kind of like an actual transaction importing a private key will simply just give you access to that cryptocurrency, give you the ability to sign transactions with a private key.
All right, so I hope that answers the question. I believe that it does. And there was a second one running out of time here. Uh, the other person was asking, is a hardware wallet more secure than a software wallet? The big difference really is that a hardware wallet, those private keys we just talked about, they always stay on that physical device. Usually it's like a USB stick. The private key always stays on that physical device. You download a wallet software onto the computer, but when it comes time to sign a transaction, you're not signing that transaction with the private key that's on the computer. You're signing it with the private key that's in the wallet and that, sorry, that's in the hardware device and that hardware device communicates with the wallet. Okay. That's why hardware wallets are more secure. They also use the same seed phrase technology, the same master private key technology. So the question later asks of somebody that lost $15,000 worth of cryptocurrency because someone got their seed phrase. So you still would have that same concern on a hardware wallet. And then back to the first question about this mystery person uh, that had 500 Bitcoin even when they were in custody. Uh, if, if the law enforcement doesn't have your seed phrase or doesn't have your encryption password, if they get a physical, like your phone that has a wallet, there's nothing that they can do. Now, they can coerce you and say, we're going to hold you in contempt of court. The judge will say, you're going to be in contempt of court if you don't give us the password or the seed phrase. But the cool thing is, for freedom people, at least we have a choice now instead of them just confiscating your gold or emptying your checking account. Right. So I just want to throw that out there. Yes. And if 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 they if the law enforcement comes and issues a search warrant and takes your your seed phrase or whatever, and you have the seed phrase written somewhere else, or you have it memorized and they haven't taken your physical body yet. You can then go import that seed phrase into another wallet, send it to a new wallet and they won't be able to access that currency. All right, so I hope that clears things up. Again, you create a wallet. It generates a master private key. That master private key has a bunch of sub or slave private keys. Each one of those private keys has a corresponding public address. You send and receive crypto to and from the public address. The private key unlocks access to each public address. That master private key is translated into a series of 12, 18, or 24 words. That's the same thing as the seed phrase. The master private key is the seed phrase. just makes it easier for us humans to deal with. And finally, you can only import a 12-word seed phrase into another wallet that does 12 words, 18 words into another 18-word wallet, or 24 words into another 24-word wallet. This is John Bush. If you want to learn more about cryptocurrency, I have a four-hour free webinar at buildwealthoptout.com, buildwealthoptout.com. Peace and freedom. Stay free out there. Thanks. All right, next up, let's hear from Jeff Lawton on composting and, and less how to compost and more what do you and what don't you compost. We have a question here about composting. This is Jeff Lawton coming to you from the Dead Sea Valley in Jordan, 400 meters below sea level, while I'm working on the Green in the Desert project. Okay, so the question is what can you compost and what shouldn't you compost? Um... And there's lots of writing in books that say you shouldn't put weeds in compost. Um, you can't compost animal remains or animal bodies or all kinds of things. But the truth is, the first law of compost is, if it's lived, it can live again. So that gives you a massive range. What they're really saying in the books is or the information, we don't think we can teach you composting well enough that it would be safe to do animals. Or weeds might have a residual seed that, that won't survive or shouldn't survive the temperature, but we don't think we can teach you that. 
The reality is that weed seeds burn out when you get over 50 degrees centigrade and definitely when you get over 65. You can get right up to 70. But we now know the best temperature is between 55 and 65 because that's where you get most life. And it's really the life in the compost that you're after. And it's beneficial life for the soil. So you're inoculating the soil with beneficial organisms that are going to help your soil create and suspend fertility and make it available to your plants. So what when, you, when you're composting dead bodies, you've got to make sure they're in the middle of the pile um, because uh, otherwise they're going to get torn out by dogs and cats and rats and all kinds of things are going to get in there. So you've got to make sure a fresh dead body has got to be in the middle of the pile and well away from the smell. And if it's a large body, you're going to need a large compost or you're going to have to cut it up. Um, but because of its makeup, it's going to break down very, very quickly and within one or two turns, um, just really a few days or a week, you can't really recognise it and it's all broken to pieces. We've done it many, many, many times. So weeds, well, they're all going to break up and they're not going to really carry any residual problems and the seeds are going to all break down. Um, now, people often ask me, can I put non-organic components in there? In other words, plants that have been sprayed with chemicals. Um, yeah, you can, because the chemical component is very small compared to the bulk material, and the small amount of chemicals that you're adding to your compost heap are going to bond with the carbon molecules, and they're going to, in the breakdown cycle, the carbon molecule almost becomes like an adhesive element, and it, it attracts other molecules to make it a long-chain molecule. So when, it, when the toxins get bonded to the carbon, which they will, as long as they're not a large percentage of your compost heap, as long as they're a small percentage, those, those elements are going to bond to the carbon molecule and become long-chain molecules and become inert. So it's a good place to get rid of small amounts of residual toxicity because it's all going to get bonded up into the carbon cycle. And uh, then those elements are not no longer volatile. They're, they're, they're locked up as long-chain carbon com- molecule components. Now... Uh, as far as what's not advisable to compost, um, you have to be very careful composting human manure if you're a human, and we're talking about humans here. Uh, I don't think anybody else, any other animal on earth intentionally composts. There's a few nesting birds that compost uh, to incubate their eggs. But human pathogens around the place that you're working can be a bit iffy. If it's your own if it's your own human you are, or it's your fam, families that you live with, um, that's, that's not so bad. But lots of other people, you need to be careful with human you um, simply from a health point of view, while it goes through its breakdown cycle. The other thing is, allelopathic components need to be pre-treated. Now, allelopathy is um, a, a plants and trees that don't favour the growth of other plants and trees. Um, They have a a negative effect. There's really not that many on Earth per number of plants and animals there are out there. So it's only about 5% of all plants um, and trees are allelopathic. Um, And 15% are very positive, like the leguminous species. They're very beneficial to other plants around them and trees 
um, and then um, 80% are just completely neutral. They don't have any effect in any direction. So um, if we're trying to make a, a compost heap without manure, we're going to have to include a large amount of the beneficial leguminous plants to replace the nitrogen. But what we have to be careful with if we're using a lot of allelopathic plants, because they don't break down very easily. They don't favour the microorganisms. They don't favour uh, growth of other plants around them. But what you can do is you can pile them up, shred them, cut them up so they've got a large surface area, pile them up, keep them damp and shady, and wait until you get ear mushrooms all the way random. So you've got a, a, a sporing of ear mushrooms they sort of stick out like people little ears or larger ears all the way around the, the pile once you get that fungal spore in and you can see it quite visually what's happened there is the allelopathy has now broken down so you can use those components with that pre-treatment immediately otherwise you've got to wait for that to happen but you can you can speed it up by just shredding piling you need a cubic meter plus in size and you keep it damp and shady, and the fungi will move in and take over. Then you can just compost it. So that's it. That's, uh, that's all you need to know. So the, the components that are allelopathic are not good to put into the worm farms either because it's still a breakdown through microorganisms in the manure of the compost worms that does all the work. And, and those allelopathic elements don't favour those interactions until they've been broken down a bit by fungi which break down the allelopathic effect um, and there you go, compost away you, you have a, a million choices out there, billions of choices of, of recipes and, and component ratios it's always the carbon nitrogen ratio that you're after to make the event happen and um, the more fresh uh, green, fresh is best fresh green leaves that you include and a diversity of fresh green leaves, the more um, diversity of beneficial organisms you'll bring into your compost. So that's uh, something worth bearing in mind. Um, you're actually bringing in beneficial organisms on the green leaves if you're bringing them in really fresh. All right, have fun and create lots of good compost because that's what grows things. In fact, gardening is really a byproduct of composting. And food forests are a compost creation mechanism. Next up, how to make sure that your generator will start in cold weather. And I'm going to say that this really applies to making sure your generator is going to start and run, period. And it's something that we all need to pay attention to if we own a generator. Because many of us own a generator for power outages. And then our power is remarkably stable for a year or two or three. And it's real easy to forget about, hey, that generator sitting there doesn't need to just sit there. I want you to start thinking about your generator like an airplane. Do you know the quickest way to have an airplane die? Stop flying it. Really, you can look it up. With that, here's Tim Cook on making sure that doesn't happen to your generator. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back with another segment for the expert council, so let's dive right in. This week's segment is from a YouTube comment that I got on a user over there who was concerned about being able to get their generator to start in the dead of winter. 
So I put together my top five tips for making sure your generator will start up even in the extreme cold. And I got one bonus tip for you as well. So the very first one, if it's an electric start, make sure that you keep the battery topped up. Now there's a few different ways to do it. You can get yourself just a little trickle charger and plug it in and have it uh, plugged onto the generator permanently, the battery, and it'll just sit there and kind of maintain it. That's what I use. You can get a solar version of that that doesn't need to be plugged in at all if your generator is stored somewhere where you don't have access to power. Or you can make sure it's ran on a regular basis if it has the uh, circuitry in it to top the battery up. Or once every couple of months, go out with a battery charger and top it up. But first tip, always make sure that battery's topped up because a dead battery is no good in the dead of winter. Now, number two, if you live in an area like I do, where the wind can hurt your face very easily, and it's somewhere where it gets cold and stays cold for quite a while, something else you can try is to switch from the factory oil, a lot of them are a 5W30 or a 10W30, and go down to a lower weight, a thinner oil, so a 0W30. And what that does is, that is a thinner viscosity of oil, and it allows the engine to crank over a little bit easier when things get really, really cold. Because, you know, the th the colder it is, the thicker the oil gets, the harder it is for the engine to turn over, and the harder you're going to have to crank it. So anything you can do to ease up on that engine getting started is a great thing. Now, if you live where it only gets mildly cold, don't bother. And don't forget to switch back to summer oil, because you don't want to end up having too thin of an oil in there when it gets too hot out. Now, number three, if you've never used this stuff before, take a look at it, but keep a can of starting fluid on hand. This isn't always necessary, but if it's really cold or, you know, if you've got some junk in the carburetor, that kind of stuff, first you do, first you go over to the air filter, take the air filter housing off, take the air filter out, and then open up your choke so that, you know, there's a little flap in there so you can see right in to where the carburetor is. Take the nozzle, spray a good, healthy dose in there, close your carburetor, give it a start. A lot of times you might have to do that two or three or four times, but what that does is it gives the engine something to burn really quick. And sometimes that can be just enough to heat it up or get it going so that the engine, the generator can turn over and keep going. It's uh, cheap insurance to keep on hand. You know, it's like three or four bucks for a can. I'll grab a link to the stuff I keep and send it to Jack. I'll also send a link for the battery uh, top-up charger as well. But those kind of things are, are dead simple to use. Now, here's the next one. And this is probably the most important of all of them. And that is regular starting of the generator. You know, every one to two months, I go out to my garage. I haul my generator out. I start it up. I put it under load. I run the gas through it run the gas empty. I usually hook it up the natural gas as well and just get everything running. The absolute worst thing you can do for a generator, whether it's a summer or a winter start, it's just more exacerbated in the winter time, is to never run it. If you let that generator sit in your garage and never touch it for months or years on end, it's never going to start for you when you go. So do yourself a favor, get familiar with the procedure get comfortable with starting the generator and run it every month to every two months just so everything's up and running, nothing gets seized, you know, none of the gas gets gummy in the carburetor, all of that kind of stuff. But that, to me, is the best one for sure. Number five, fresh gas. 
You know, I, this should go without saying, but have gas on hand, rotate your gas, and if you live, again, somewhere where it gets really, really cold, make sure that you rotate your gas before or at the beginning, the start of winter time, because winter gas, at least up here in Canada, quite often has different additives that help it burn a little bit better in the winter time. And throw some seafoam in their generator every so often. If you're not familiar with seafoam, that is like magic in a can. It'll clean out any carbon deposits and that kind of junk buildup in your carburetor and will help keep your generator running absolutely smoothly. And now, <laughs> number six, and like I said, it's a bit of a cheat, but if you have a, say, like a porch or somewhere where you can bring the generator in the night before a storm to warm it up, that is the best thing you can do. Or if you have a heated garage, crank the heat up a little bit the night before the storm. Anything you can do, you know, don't bring it in and set it in the kitchen and get oil all over the uh, kitchen floor and get your wife mad at you. But if you can find a way to warm it up, that'll be your best way to get it started. So I hope those tips helped, guys. That's the type of stuff that I use up here. It works great for summer uh, and especially for winter, getting your generator started. If you want to know more about what I'm up to, toolmantim.co is the easiest. And then uh, for sure, two nights a week, Thursday and Sunday evening, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, we have the Workshop Podcast Live, Thursday's Repairedness, The Art of Home Maintenance When Help Isn't Around the Corner, and Sunday evening is an interview with somebody from the preparedness field, an entrepreneur, someone who has a handyman mindset, or just somebody really interesting that I want to sit down and have a conversation with. So drop by, interact in the comments, let us know you're there, hit the subscribe button, stick around. And guys, that's it for me this week. As always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So with my anchor segment for the podcast today, I want to talk about a quote that I heard today from Thomas Sowell. And I was listening to, uh, I believe it was Robert Breedlove's podcast. Or was, no, Anthony Pompliano's podcast, the Pomp Podcast, is where I heard this. And I don't even remember what the rest of the episode was. I only caught the very beginning. It was like I was listening to something, and then it ended, and it went on to my next podcast in the feed. And, and this just happened to come up. And I heard this this one statement. I'm going to go back and listen to the episode. It's like pause now because this one made it worth the whole thing. And it was a quote by Thomas Sowell, and it was, you'll never understand bureaucracies until you understand that for bureaucrats, procedure is everything and outcomes are nothing. And I heard that, and I hit rewind, and I listened to it again, and I hit rewind, and I listened to it again. I listened to it like three or four times. And I was like, yeah, i got to come back and listen to this guy, because what a great place to start. And... Uh, but then I started thinking about it more as I was getting ready this morning to do the show, and I thought, that's what I'm going to talk about today, because it really does answer everything that has to do with bureaucracy. And what we have to understand about bureaucracy to really get the impact of this quote, there is the typical thing, when I say bureaucracy, most of you think, okay, he's talking about government. And boy, I'll tell you what, the master of bureaucracy is the state. But do you, do you actually believe that all bureaucracies... Um, are state-level bureaucracies. Anybody that's worked for a company with more than a few hundred people in it absolutely knows that's not the case. When I worked for Fluke Networks, the whole thing was a bureaucracy. Making individual decisions within the company was exceedingly difficult. In fact, the company that I went to work for, 
how I ended up with Fluke. I went to work for a company called Microtest. And Microtest was a fairly large company, over 500 people in it. And uh, with the manufacturer rep sales force, that was like another 200 individuals. And we did have some procedures, which is procedure is, the, is how bureaucracy functions. But there was also lots of leeway, like here's what you do, and if you don't follow procedure... Okay, if you're at a high enough level to be trusted to be out there, you know, selling the company to, to corporations and entities and whatever, then obviously you have enough intelligence to make decisions on the fly. Do whatever you want. That's what we were told as managers. Do whatever you want, but damn, we'll be able to explain what you did. I love that. That's why I took the job. Six months into it, Danaher, who owned Fluke Networks, bought us, and that all went away. And it made me miserable for three years. Absolutely three years of fighting my own company to do the right thing for my customer and the right thing for my company. So there's bureaucracy everywhere. But let's think of the quote again. You will never understand bureaucracies until you understand that for bureaucrats, procedure is everything and outcomes are nothing. Nothing. The outcome is irrelevant as long as you follow the procedure. This is called how not to get your ass fired or in trouble or sued. That's what this is. So this happens, for instance, in a medical industry. This is rampant. This is why people during the COVID pandemic got COVID, and many times because there was inflammation involved and they weren't able to drink enough fluids, because that's one of the symptoms, is really bad sore throats. This happened to my wife. And they would go to the ER and say, I think I'm dehydrated. You know, and by every measure and stretch of the word, they were dehydrated. Dehydration is a life-threatening condition. And then they would say, so since I'm dehydrated, how about an IV bag of fluids? And then the, the doctor or whoever at the ER, the NP, the PA, the nurse, whatever, said, well, we can't do that because why? Fluids are not a treatment for covid Well, moron, I didn't go to medical school, but I know that fluids are a treatment for dehydration. But what we had then was a procedure that had been put in place, a system of protocol, that when somebody comes in with this condition, you do these things, and you do all these things this way, and you don't do anything else. So if you were concerned about the outcome, and you were a physician, and you were looking at a patient that was dehydrated for any reason at all, It wouldn't matter why you would say since the outcome, this person not dying, not becoming more sick, not ending up admitted to the hospital when they don't need to be, all these bad outcomes, you would say, okay, give the guy fluids. Now, if you think I'm exaggerating, I have an EMT, actually it was a paramedic, who wrote me and said he had to go to the, the ER that he worked out of three times. And on the third time, he finally browbeat them into giving him fluids. Now you got to think about that. This is this is not some person off the street doesn't know what they're talking about. This is a paramedic. Paramedics carry the stuff to do fluids in their their vehicles every day. They get out in the field, they assess the situation, and say this dude's dehydrated. He was mowing the lawn in August. It's 92 degrees, and the guy's 89 years old. Give him fucking fluids, and they do it. They make that decision on the fly. But once the bureaucracy wraps its tentacles around a thing. That becomes impossible. So even though this person was completely qualified to make this decision for other people in his job on a daily basis, he wasn't qualified so that it could be done to him. That's bureaucracy. And this is in government, and this is in what I call all gilded environments. 
So in permaculture, when we talk about guilds, we talk about them very positively. So a guild is we plant this tree, then we plant this herbaceous stuff, and we plant these other uh, plants and bushes and shrubs and vines. And they all support each other. That's the way we think about it. But what we're missing a lot of times in permaculture is, why do we do that? Because if we don't do it, nature will send its own vines and shrubs and herbs. And they may not be what we want. So gilding is not just about things supporting each other within a system, but the system regulating itself to keep other things out. That's what bureaucracies do. And that's what guilds or unions do. And if you really want to understand this in medicine, the American Medical Association isn't some group of people that are out to make sure that the best stuff happens for you. The AMA is a union for the medical industry. It's, it exists to serve the industry, not the customer. Like, do you think the Teamsters Union exists to serve the customers of the Teamsters? Or does it serve the, the, the bureaucracy of the Teamsters itself? And this is where we pull in the iron law of bureaucracy from Jeffrey Pornell, who unfortunately is one of the great thinkers of our time, passed away a few years ago. And the iron law of bureaucracy states in any bureaucracy, the people who are dedicated to the bureaucracy itself, right, not its mission. So this entity, it has, it, 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 it has two types of people inside it. Some that want the entity itself to be successful, and some that are most concerned about the mission the entity is supposed to fulfill. So if you look at it at the Department of Education, for instance, this monstrosity, $50 billion a year thing we don't need at the federal level. Absolutely no need of a Department of Education at the federal level. Every state can handle their own shit. They don't need it, but we have it. But there are people inside the Department of Education, that their most concerning thing in their lives. Children get a good education. Don't think that everybody inside this bureaucracy is horrible, awful, money-grubbing, piece of crap that only cares about the society itself, the entity itself. But the people that run it, the Iron Law states, they will always, always, always be the people dedicated to the entity rather than the mission. The missionaries will be out in the field doing good works, best they can under the circumstances, and they will always have to push upward, and they will always hit a point where what they want doesn't matter, follow procedure, or you're fired, or you're in trouble, or you're reprimanded. And then eventually they'll get conditioned, and they'll always fall back on, I followed the rules, even if it was a bad outcome, it doesn't matter. So doctor, followed procedure, patient dies, doesn't matter. Now, you could actually go in there and say, doctor, with your education, should you have not known not to do this, And the answer can be yes, and he's still going to win the lawsuit if the paperwork says this is what you're supposed to do. right? So everybody in these bureaucracies, Department of Education, does the same thing. I did what I was supposed to do. And that's, I was only following orders. right? I, police tell you all the time, I don't really want to do this, but what can I do? It's my job. I'm just doing my job. I'm only following orders. It is the natural outcome of bureaucracy, and it is why they exist. But inside the iron law, the people that don't give a shit about the mission could care less about the outcome. The people who most fit soul's definition, I care the most about procedure and the least about the outcome, dedicated to the entity rather than the mission, will always rise to the top. They will set the rules. They will control promotions. They will have all the power. And that's how those two things go together. And so one more time, you will never understand bureaucracies until you understand that for bureaucrats, procedure is everything. Outcome is nothing. Now, the reason that there's more of this in government 
and in government-regulated industries, i.e. fascist industries. The more the government's involved, the more bureaucracy will be there. Is because government has a monopoly. It is easier for government to exist with this status quo of the procedures more important than the outcome. If you're truly in a free market, this does not work. Because if you buy a product and it doesn't work, and you will go find another product. If you use a service provider and they suck, you will go find another service provider. So if they only stick to procedure and protocol, they will fail. But within the bounds of government and heavy government regulation, bureaucracy is everything and it will always save your ass. So if you've ever wondered why the government sucks so bad, and this ties back in if you're on the live stream or watching the video here after it's put up, you didn't hear it. Ron Paul was on the show today. Uh, you can go look up the audio episode of the show, 3080 at the survivalpodcast.com. And he talked about how government always makes the situation worse. What's interesting is when Ron Paul's uh, folks sent over the segment, I didn't listen to it or review it. And these two, again, fit. It seems so often my anchor segment and the Ron Paul segments fit so well in my show together. Um, and it's usually not planned. And I think it's just because if you think in the forms of being a freedom maximalist. We talk in cryptocurrency about being a Bitcoin maximalist or whatever. I like the term Robert Breedlove uses of freedom maximalist. If your maximum concern is for freedom, your philosophy is going to be very similar no matter how you come at it at the core. We might have a thousand different ways to do things and then the best ideas win. But what we find in a real marketplace, it's not the best idea wins is that there's room for thousands of what we call in marketing vertical niches. You might love what I do on the Survival Podcast. You might think Jack is awesome. I love the way he is. I love the way he doesn't give a shit what anybody says. I love the way he won't censor his speech. I love the way that like, if somebody gets butt hurt because he uses a word like retarded, and he used a retarded to, uh, to describe stupid behavior, not to mock somebody with special needs, right? then I love that he does that. You might be somebody who gets triggered by that word and you don't want to listen to me. Okay, You don't want to listen to me, don't listen to me. That's free market. Procedure would be, Jack, you can say anything you want. You can talk about grooming children sexually, and that's okay if it's in the handbook, but don't say retarded. right? That is gilding. That is concerning about the procedure instead of the outcome. Okay. Now, when you have this world where everybody can do things the way they want, okay, and everybody already does things the way they want, they just hide their malicious behavior because they have to to stay out of prison, right? That everybody already does this, but when everybody's free to do this, then bad actors are immediately identified and and pushed out. But there's going to be a thousand good ideas for every one problem. A thousand good ideas. An idea that works for you may not work for Tom. And an idea that works for uh, for green green country agroforestry here may not work for EcoMouse, as I call a pe couple people out that are in the live chat. Right? That's okay. Then somebody says, I like Jack Spierko. Somebody else says, Jack's a jackass. I like Joe Rogan. Okay, fine. Go listen to Rogan. Or Jack's a jerk. He doesn't know anything about freaking cryptocurrency because he's not a Bitcoin maximalist. So I'm going to go listen to Peter McCormack. Okay, go ahead. It's all okay. There's room for all sorts of solutions that work, and you let the individual choose the outcome they're looking for. Government is incapable of this. 
You cannot have government that does this. You can have government that, I guess, allows it, but it can't do it because government is force. Democracy is the means by which you feel good about enforcing your will on other people. That's reality. So what's the solution? The solution is more in the lines of a big scary word. Anarchy. What do I mean when I say anarchy? Tune in to Outback with Jack tomorrow. That will be my anchor segment. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Uh, as I wrap up here, let me remind you one of the ways you can help support our show. Do your online shopping just starting at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Go there whenever you shop online. Start there, and no matter what you buy, you will help us out. You'll see all the items that I review, and if uh, I've reviewed it, and it's on tspaz anyway, uh, it will be a good item. It will be something I would spend my own money on again, or I wouldn't... Uh, recommend you do everything there I've bought for myself and I would buy again. That's that's kind of how I do things. Today's item of the day, I brought to you just about a month ago, and I just thought it would be a good one to bring back around. This is a wonderful book. It was originally published in 1882. It's called The American Boy's Handy Book, What to Do and How to Do It. I found out about this from a, a friend who, who passed away a long time ago who used to work for me. His name was Kurt Nothnagel. And he had an original copy of this book. It was in pretty rough shape, but it was complete and intact in a first edition from 1882. And I tried like crazy to buy it off him, and he was not interested in selling it. And I was fascinated by it. It has things in it like how to make a sling bow, right? How to do taxidermy work. How to do all types of things that the average person today would say, well, that's really dangerous and we probably shouldn't do that. And that would be if an adult was doing it, let alone an American boy. Um, see, in the 1880s, the safety police and the politically correct and the generally stupid had not taken over policing society yet, and people did this stuff. And the fact that this, if you read the reviews on this book, you'll see two, two forms of reviews that are negative. One will be people that bought the Kindle version. Don't do it. It sucks. You want the print version that's a reproduction of the original book. Since it's in the public domain, people have made a Kindle version out of it that is just a scan and it's awful. Okay, Don't get the Kindle version. The other group, though, will be the people that are why you should buy it. There are Karens and boy Karens losing their mind in the reviews of this book about how dangerous and detrimental to society. This is why you should have it. The fact that people wish to censor language today is why you should have this book. The, the fact that people have... Taking things that used to be taken, because understand, in the 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s, this was a very popular book. And people would buy it and give it to their young boys and say, go be fruitful, multiply, and kill things with a sling bow. And they did. And people didn't die or blow themselves up or anything. They learned. They became capable of doing things. This book is a piece of history that I think we need to make a piece of the present It belongs on your bookshelf. You should go through this with your young children, boys and girls both, and teach them how to do things that are a little bit dangerous. I think it's good to do dangerous things with your kids because this is what most people do. I don't want Johnny or Susie to experience anything dangerous their entire life. And then Johnny or Susie gets to 16 years of age. They've not experienced anything dangerous their entire life. They get a defensive driving course and a license, and they go out with a 6,000-pound weapon that drives at speeds over 100 miles an hour. They don't know how to deal with something dangerous, and they end up hurting someone or somebody else, partly at least because they never learned how to deal with things that were dangerous. Yes, this is the American Boy's Handy Book. Some of it's dangerous, 
But it's not so dangerous that we cannot trust our young people with it, especially with some guidance. The fact that some people think it is, that alone, ladies and gentlemen, just to infuriate the boy and girl Karens out there, is why it belongs in your library and in the mind of your child. With that, I've wrapped things up. Hope you enjoyed it today. It's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way. Let me show you a better way